and thanks to everyone for joining us uh, today. My name is Blake Rutherford with Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and I'm joined today by Howard Schweitzer, the managing partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and Kevin Washoe, uh, government relations principal uh, in our public strategies group, and uh, well, hopefully, we more frequent visitor to to our calls. Mark is. Uh, off in the mountains, um, allegedly working, but probably skiing. So we will miss him uh, today, but we're happy to have you, Kevin. Thanks Thank you. for joining us, Howard. Great to be with you as well. Thanks, Blake. Um, well, I, I, I begin these calls pretty much the same way, which is, which is always in a, in a state of, of, of surprise and at times um, curiosity with what is happening in Washington. There is certainly... Uh, a lot going on. Uh, when we were together last week, we talked about the president's speech, the success uh, of that speech. It certainly was well received by all by all polling accounts. It was uh, characterized very favorably among the press. Lots of people um, said that Trump uh, finally became president uh, the night that he gave that speech, uh, only to have uh, the those notions uh, called into question about three days later uh, when the president uh, took to Twitter uh, upon the news of his attorney general recusing himself uh, from the Russia investigation, and we've been in a state of flux uh, ever since. So that's really where I want to begin our discussion is post-speech, Howard. Um, yeah. You know, we, we all agreed uh, that it was – a political home run, um, but in the days that followed, uh, circumstances seemed to take a turn. I'll characterize for the negative in political, uh, in a political context. But w what are your observations um, it, it, as to the president's posturing uh, after the speech? A, a couple of observations. One is, um, I'm not sure, Mark thought that the president did such a great job in his speech, but he's not here to defend himself. So I'm very happy about that. But on, on a serious note, look, I mean, it was, it turned into an abysmal week for, for the Trump administration. Um, but I think we have to look more deeply at what's going on here. Um, and what I think is going on is a war within our government, a war, um, by the intelligence bureaucracy against the Trump administration. Obviously, the session stuff was timed to go along with the speech. It was time to counteract the positive um, energy that was out there as a result of the joint address to Congress. You know, Trump had made a decision very early on before he was sworn in to, to take on the intelligence agencies and the intelligence bureaucracy. Uh, he made that choice, and he's paying the price. This is the price that we knew we predicted he would pay because of the way he was choosing to um, run his campaign and, and run his transition. And I think right now what they're wrestling with is whether they want to fight that fight or – or advance their agenda, because they've got an ambitious agenda that can be advanced. But every time 
the the war with the intelligence agencies takes another turn. Um, it sets that agenda back, and there's only so much of that that um, his agenda can can sustain. Kevin, what are what are your your reactions? Because Democrats were were by and large caught flat-footed after after the speech, although Mark had his had his criticisms. Um, but by and large, the messaging in the hours after the speech was just sort of uh, disjointed. Chuck Schumer couldn't figure out what to say any more than 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 I personally thought Steve Bashir's rebuttal was perhaps one of the most asinine political decisions in 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 presidential political history. Um, but but in the days that followed, Democrats found themselves back in back in the game thanks to the thanks to the president's uh, tweets. Um, what what are your reactions to 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 life after uh, the speech? Well, Blake, as you know, my Democratic credentials are pretty are pretty solid. But I will tell you, I I texted uh, a former colleague uh, right in the middle of the speech, probably about 35 minutes in, and I, I sent him a text and I said, I think Trump's hitting a home run with this speech. Um, I think if you took away uh, the name Trump, and you just focus on the issues, I think most people would be like, wow, this, this all makes a lot of sense. Maybe they disagree with kind of how, how you're going to make the sausage. I think for the most part, he did a great job. And, and I liken it to the uh, the old adage when, um, you know, a quarterback throws four interceptions in a game and somehow the other team has no <laughs> no yardage. <laughs> They're like, they can't move the ball at all, but the other team is winning, but they keep throwing interceptions to get them back in the game. And and I feel like the Trump, uh, in, to, to Howard's point, the Trump administration basically threw five to six interceptions uh, that week, uh, or at least on the lead up, where they just totally stepped on their stuff. Because I thought the Democratic response was pretty pathetic. Um, I thought the way a lot of them handled themselves in the hall was pretty pathetic. Um, and, and I think when you you panned on the camera and you kind of did a wide shot of, of, of the Democrats, they were, to your point, kind of dumbfounded and totally caught, caught flat-footed. I think deep down they can't say this and go on TV, but I think they probably had the same reaction that I had listening to the speech halfway. I'm like, oh, this isn't that bad. This may play pretty well. And I think obviously with the with the lead up afterwards, uh, going into some of the pundits, I mean, it was pretty universally praised across the board from the the, the national pundits at least. And I think um, you know the Democrats should be uh, sending some uh, fruit baskets over the White House, thanking them for uh, uh, for the week and how it ended. So. Yeah, I mean, Howard, you know, our our clients are particularly interested in 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 what it means when there is a war within our within our government and the dysfunction that at least you know we we perceive exists within this White House. And and I don't say that from a partisan fashion. I mean, news reports are characterizing what's going on in the West Wing as 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 really really dysfunctional and and. And at times, just uh, just paralyzing, especially when the White House chief of staff is under such extreme scrutiny. Uh, what what do you make of of the the perception versus perhaps the reality of what's happening inside the White House and the the, the challenges that presents um, for our government? Well, Blake, those are that's normal dysfunction if there is such a thing. I mean, look, every administration that I've been a part of takes time to get up and running. There's infighting in the White House. I mean, it certainly was there. Certainly was there during the Bush administration when I was was an appointee. It was 
bear in the Clinton administration. I mean, it's, look, there's always, quote, you know, some dysfunction and infighting inside the executive branch. And, and by the way, some of that is very healthy from the point of view of um, differing perspectives factoring into to key decisions. What I think is going on is at a much deeper level, and it's it's the um, it's the war that's being fought with top secret information and leaks to the press, and that war against against the Trump administration, and that is something that you know is this is of a historic nature, and these guys don't um, have a plan for dealing with it, and until they get one they're going to be crippled in terms of their ability to achieve their political objectives and policy objectives. Um, yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you make of that, Kevin? I mean, you spent time in Washington. You, you've certainly, um, you've certainly, you know, operated um, in, in politics for a long time. This, this to Howard's point um, really has has crippled this administration out of the gate. I mean, I, I right or not, they they did again to Howard's point. Um, you know, sort of sort of wage this this war with the intelligence community, and it's it seems to be presenting real problems. Um, but you've also counseled people out of trouble as yeah. well. What, what does this White House do? I yeah. mean, what do they? How do they deal with 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 the challenges Howard's identified? Well, I think it's I, I think it's going to be pretty brutal because I think to, to Howard's point, um, you know, the Trump campaign, the president himself, the transition really set set themselves up, as Howard said, to to pick a fight when I don't think he needed to pick this fight. And I think let's take a step back really quick. I mean, if you look back uh, over the history of the last sixty years, you think about you know what President Nixon had to go through, and obviously with the intelligence community, what President Kennedy had to go through with the military brass, you know, uh, early on in his administration, and he had to take them on. I mean, this is not abnormal, uh, but what I think is is really not normal is the fact how aggressive he was on the campaign front. And I think every president has had to handle the bureaucracy in their own way, but he was so out in front on this. I think the, the, the chickens are coming home to roost. And I think you know, it's going to be very tough. I mean, you, you would think it could have been a kickstart. He had a he had a restart for about 24 hours. And you would think if he could just get back to work. And, you know, we haven't even touched on the tweet that he said about uh, the former President Obama that I think almost exacerbated the whole the whole the whole point. But you would think if if the Trump administration could figure out a way and it may take some time and it's, it, you know, there's an old adage in Scranton, like pick and shovel work. It's going to take some time. But they could really just focus on the issues and focus on the things that got them to this point and less about the tweets and less about the conspiracies. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to go away, but I think it would be their best bet to kind of focus on the work. You know, I think President Clinton, when he was going through his issues in in the mid-90s, the thing that he said that he needed to do is get back to work for the American people. And I think, you know, the Trump team needs to put their head down and, you know, focus on the infrastructure Focus on the rollout of the of the uh, the repeal of Obamacare, um, and I would actually go even further when they're looking at some of the some of the things they want to do with the, the immigration bill. Remember, Democrats in the Senate voted for a fairly comprehensive immigration reform bill. Maybe they could take a pa- a part of that where it wouldn't be uh, so aggressive, but start the start the 
start getting some legislative wins. And I think they need to do that quick. And I think they need to be pragmatic about it. And my sense would be, um, you know, a four-yard run is a lot better than a Hail Mary touchdown for these guys right now because I don't think it's going to come. I don't think many people want to give it to them. So that's my that's my take. So it's going to be a, a long, hard slog, I think. Well, we'll, we'll dedicate this call to, to, to John Chaney, the offensive coordinator of the Pitt Panthers or former offensive coordinator of the Pitt Panthers. I can't remember if he's still there for all the football analogies. But, Howard, what are your – what are your reactions to that? Because I, I, I mean, think that need... you have you have preached you have preached getting down to business for for yeah. a while, and yet this administration just seems to, to Kevin's analogy, keep keep throwing you know mindless interceptions rather than you know blocking and tackling and doing the things that 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 would pragmatically make sense. Um, I think they need to bring in a heavy-handed an experienced White House chief of staff. And Trump needs to basically turn the reins of the White House um, over to to that person and let him or her uh, run this thing. And they need to um, get a hold of, <laughs> they need to, to corral in some respect at least to his tweeting and, uh, and the messaging and, and bring it all together, but they, what they really need is, um, and I, look, I, I think there are reasons not to be optimistic, but this is going to happen. Uh, I was much more optimistic, clearly going into the speech last week, like, like we just, you know, not to regurgitate our call from last week, but we, they, they clearly prepared and practiced and, um, and thought about the messaging and were strategic. And that's the way they need to run the White House day to day. Well, we've seen, I mean, in, in, in the aftermath of the speech, we have seen two, we've seen movement on, on two policy prerogatives, uh, one being a, a, a reissue of, of the travel ban and the second, um, the rollout of what at least the congressional draft of uh, yeah. repeal in place uh, would look like. I want to, I, I want to spend more time on, on, on the Affordable Care Act because of, of the nature of that and, 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 and the premise. But, but what do you make, Howard, uh, you know, the fact that, that after the speech, they, you know, they, they pulled back on, on issuing um, the new travel ban, hoping to take advantage of, of the, you know, the, the positive attention paid to the speech. And then the president comes out on, on Saturday morning with a, with a barrage of antagonistic tweets towards President Obama, something Kevin alluded to and we should talk about, because in, in that context, rel- relatively unprecedented um, in terms of, of not only what the president alleged, but, but its purpose. Um, any thoughts as to what motivated uh, that activity Saturday, Saturday morning? Distraction, obviously. And yeah. I don't think it's that unprecedented to try to for a president to try to distract the country from the whatever the issue of the day is if it's bad for the president. I think it's highly unusual for the president to do that by making up facts. Right. I mean I mean Kevin, what what's your reaction to, to the president's Twitter barrage on on Saturday morning, because the, to Howard's point, certainly motivations seem to distract from 
from the Sessions news and, and what that what that means in the context of this Russia investigation. But no one sort of rallied around him here. Yeah. He was he was the you know as we like to say where I'm from the loneliest number is one. Yeah. Um, well, if, I mean I just think that if you, I I get you know trying to change the cycle, I get I get trying to um, you know focus on something else. But I mean I think in the end the Sessions thing will work itself out. I don't think he's going to resign. Um, I I could be I may be in the minority with many of my former colleagues. I don't know if there was a lot of there there. You know, I haven't read the testimony verbatim, but I think in the end, um, you know, listen, a member of the you know Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, people meet with ambassadors all the time. I mean, hell, this, this Russian ambassador was is on Washington Life magazine all the time, going to cocktail <laughs> parties and operas. I mean, everyone. I mean, we're we're very naive to think that uh, you know uh, you know people don't talk. I mean, listen, half the ambassador corps. I'm going to put my old job on as the executive director of the host committee for the DNC. Half half of the, the ambassadors of the United States were in Philadelphia for the convention. Half the ambassadors were in Cleveland for the convention. They were talking to people. They were talking to issue, you know members of the media. They were talking to – so I think in the end, the Sessions thing would have – he would have taken some hits, and he would have had to do a mea culpa, and there have been a few things. But in the end, why he had to go, why the president had to go to that extreme – over an issue that I think in the end will 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 is really with sessions at least will take care of itself is beyond me. And you know, listen, anyone thinks that, you know, President Obama ordered, you know, wiretapping on uh President Trump is uh, I think uh um you know gravely mistaken. But I will say this, I mean, you know, let, let's look at history and I think sometimes we always forget history in this country that this is the first time anything's ever happened. I mean, going back to the sixties the FBI were tailing Martin Luther King. They had his his hotel rooms tapped. I mean, you know, the, the bureaucracy and the intelligence community have done things in the past. That doesn't mean the president of the United States knows everything that's happening. So um, it just it was remarkable that he had to go that nuclear that quick um, on a Saturday morning. It's just it's just pretty pretty remarkable. Two, two things. First of all, when I was in government, I was actually involved in a couple of matters where. Um, there were wiretaps uh, put in place on on um, different people. They were federal employees. The bar, the bar is so unbelievably high for doing that stuff. I can't. I just there's, there's no way the, there's no way that the FBI or the kind of traditional um, federal bureaucracy for implementing those kinds of things. There's just no way that that they did this. There's just no way. The other thing is, um, and it's what I keep hearing from people who actually know Trump, the man, and have done business with him and, and dealt with him, is that he is really only capable of thinking in, in the present. He thinks he doesn't think about what happened in the past. That's why he'll do something like interview Mitt Romney for Secretary of State. And he doesn't really think about the future. He thinks he reacts to things based on what's happening in that moment. He's not a guy who thinks six steps ahead in, and factors what's going to happen into his decision-making. So I think something like what happened Saturday with the tweets about about Obama and Wiretap, I think that's like his reaction in the heat of the moment to feeling exasperated by everything that's happened with respect to sessions and 
and, and just lashing out. And if somebody doesn't look, Washington is all about thinking six steps ahead. And if he doesn't, he's not going to be able to bash and tweet his way through to accomplishing his agenda. And if he doesn't get somebody in that White House who can rein him in and think six steps ahead and factor that into the messaging that's put out and the moves they make, you know, he's going to last four years. Well, uh, just to add on Howard's point, I mean, I think it's actually a really, really good thought. I mean, mean, to call for an investigation into this, he he may get what he wants, but what happens when nothing – when they bring everyone else in front of Congress and they raise their right hand and take the oath and basically everyone refutes everything that he alleged. I mean, it's, it's the embarrassment would be un, unbelievable. I think it'd probably be, you know, Howard probably pretty unprecedented that ever happened. I mean, it would be remarkable. So to your point, living in the present really didn't think about what the, the outcome would mean with some type of investigation where he was just shooting from the hip. Well, or, we or, see TV. or consider consider the alternative, which is, and I think that it, it does demonstrate to Howard's point the need for a very strong White House chief of staff who's also politically savvy. I'm not entirely sure that that this one is either, um, but it's it's be careful what you wish for in a different context, which is have the investigation, which gives every moderate Republican the cover to say we need an investigation because the president calls for it. And it backs every hyper-conservative who was willing to stonewall this thing into a corner because the president and his and and his and his press secretary, who's uh, by all accounts now not doing press briefings on camera anymore, um, you know, have called for it. And I think I think that 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 we're in this interesting position, Howard, of of this administration really, really being being truly rudderless, you know, 50 days in, mind you, that every, to your point, every administration suffers these these challenges. You have lived through them uh, directly and specifically at times of arguably much greater peril than today. Um, but 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 I think the 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 president does have uh, a need. To, to figure this out because, and this is sort of a transition to the bigger issue, we've now got, a, we've now got repeal and replace on the table. Um, it, it's, it's a plan that I want to I break down here in a minute, but, but this administration's got to decide, it would seem, Howard, that whether they're going to be able, whether they're positioned to be able to engage in what is going to be a robust and, and national debate over the future of health care once again. Um, and, and, and do you sense that this administration is ready for, for, for that debate? Um, what are your thoughts? No, I mean, clearly they're not, but either was the Obama administration. And you know what? You, you can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. The time is now. The Republicans have to make good on, on their promises with respect to Obamacare. It's not going to be easy. Um, but they, they've got to they've got to press ahead with their agenda. I think the White House is going to try to get its sea legs while Congress really drives the the repeal and replace package. Um, you know, but it's not just that. It's things like like tax reform. The, the the expectations as reflected in things like the stock market, um, but also just the, the voters' expectations are are high as far as 
what they expect Washington to accomplish in the Trump era. And again, they if they if they can right their ship, if they can focus and think multiple steps ahead, if they can get an adult into um, a position of really running things in, inside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, they can get some of this stuff done. But they they've got to move quickly. Let's talk about let's talk about the the at least the House bill, which um, uh, which is is significant insofar as it begins the debate. It's certainly not the end uh, of the debate. But Kevin, you you've certainly been close to this administration. Mark um, spent a lot of time um, working um, to in, to ensure passage of the Affordable Care Act, and and it's and it has been. Um, one of the things that not only Republicans for the last six years, but uh, President Trump during his campaign said, "Look, we're going to we're going to repeal and replace this thing." So the the House had, the House Republicans have put forward um, a bill uh, under lots of scrutiny. But but sort of here are sort of some of the big issues that that the bill addresses. It, it repeals the individual mandate, which is something that that we've been debating for a long time. It it repeals the employer mandate. Um, it repeals subsidies for for out-of-pocket expenses, um, and then it changes uh, some of the premium subsidies uh, and the way subsidies will be dis- distributed. Um, it changes Medicaid expansion, which is actually a big issue for lots of Republican governors, including my home state governor, where Medicaid expansion has literally kept rural hospitals afloat, which matters a great deal. It allows it allows the states to keep Medicaid expansion and, and allows those states who expanded Medicaid to continue to get federal funding until 2020. Um, but it also caps it caps federal funding based on, you know, per enrollee each state was spending in 2016. So it changes it but doesn't, doesn't eliminate it, which I think will be good news. Um, changes the health savings account issue um, and and you know, changes some of the dynamics um, for older Americans, but it keeps some of the popular stuff. Uh, dependent coverage until 26, until you're 26, yep. still in, still in. Uh, pre-existing conditions, still in. Um, essential health benefits, um, there are 10 essential health benefits that, that every plan had to offer, including maternity care and preventative services, still in. Uh, and prohibitions on annual and lifetime limits, which was a huge problem, especially for people in need of, of catastrophic care mm-hmm. um, is still in. So this is an interesting bill. One of the reasons I think for the for the, the things I just I just ticked off, why conservatives are not happy with it. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, what do you make of, of, of the beginning of this healthcare debate? Well, one of the things that I found uh, very fascinating about the immigration debate, and not to take anything away from an important public policy decision, but in my head, if anyone was going to get up in arms about anything, I thought the healthcare debate <laughs> was going to be, you know, even more critical to to this country because really it, it affects every facet of American life, from you know college students to to seniors to governors to your point to rural rural health clinics, the whole bit. So I mean, I, I think listen, I think <laughs> I think I think the, the Trump administration and, and members of Congress, to their credit, I think they realized there were certain things that they had to keep in this keep going that are very popular to pre-existing conditions to 26. I mean, there's whole, there's a whole host of things that they needed to do. Um, thank God they did it. Cause I think there would have been major, major backlash if they didn't. But I think to going back to our previous point, I just don't think the administration 
is going to be able to carry the water on this like you would need to do um, uh, on a national effort. Because if you think about what happened during the healthcare debate uh, way back in, I guess it was 2000, you know, you think about all the town halls that every member of Congress had, both Democrats and Republicans. You think about the about what President Obama did on the stump, and literally it was like a full-fledged campaign um, in every single state. And he took some hits at some of those uh, some of those events, and he obviously got some praise for some of those events. But you think about what you need to do just to sell something of this magnitude. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a, a big challenge. But I think initially, uh, I'll give him a I'll give him a C plus for the rollout because they because they kept some of the popular things. And you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of details that have yet to be explained that I don't think anyone really understands because they don't live it every day. We're not living it every day like the rural health clinics. It's just it's so massive. But um, I think everyone is for a more streamlined, uh, you know, productive, efficient healthcare system. And I think you know you think about it. Even back when it passed, uh, way back when, people said there were things that needed to be tweaked. And you know, let's see if uh, Congress can come together to see if some of the things that could be tweaked could be could be improved. Howard, what are your what are your initial reactions to to the House's rollout of the Affordable Care Act? And then I want to I, I do want to get into the details just a little bit because we know this is this is of interest to to lots of our clients and lots of people on the call. Um, but what are your what are your initial thoughts um, to, to to what we're seeing from the House? I think they were smart about making sure it was committee driven as opposed to driven by the Speaker's office which is something that the rank-and-file Republicans wanted wanted to see change from the Painter era. So that was smart. Um, they've certainly been coordinating with the White House and, and the Senate on this, so I think um, I think that the uh, that from that point of view, um, you know, I think I think they've been smart about it. Uh, the devil's in the details, of course, but I think from from a political point of view, um, I, I think it has a reasonable chance of, of getting done. I'm, I'm hearing that Mitch McConnell is basically telling the Republican caucus in the Senate that they will vote on the House bill and that they're not going to mess around. They're not going to mess around with it. They're going to vote on the House bill. And um, if you don't vote for it, you're the member of the United States Senate who wouldn't make good on the Republican promise to um, to repeal and replace Obamacare. So I think I think they're I think they're set up and orchestrated better here than than meets the eye. I think taking somebody like Mick Mulvaney and putting him at OMB, somebody that used to be part of the Freedom Caucus, and putting him in the position in a position where he can can push his former colleagues, uh, at least enough of them to come on board, um, is, is key. So I think they're being smarter and more strategic, and by them I mean the Republicans as a whole, than, right. um, than meets the eye. You know, it's interesting. I want to talk about the individual mandate because, you know, it, it, the, the headline will be it repeals the individual mandate, but what it, what it, what it replaces the individual mandate with is what's called a continuous coverage incentive, uh, which charges people in the individual market a 30% penalty for any lapses in health insurance coverage, which if we go back to uh, Justice Roberts' uh, reasoning in uh, the litigation over, over the individual mandate 
uh, in the, the current Affordable Care Act uh, is a tax um, and that it will be construed legally as a tax, I suspect. Um, Howard, I want to I want to stick with you because you know that's gonna that, that's gonna challenge the Freedom Caucus a little bit, um, and we know that the virtue of the individual mandate, not the political virtue, the actual practical virtue of the individual mandate, is that it that it it propels healthy people into the system, which presumably keeps costs low without some form of a penalty. Uh, for every for healthy people buying in, um, premiums go up, and we know that to be a fact. Um, what do you what do you make of the shift from from you know an individual mandate as a term of art to a continuous coverage incentive? Uh, you think it's enough to keep to keep um, Republicans aligned? Well, I think a lot of this is is about rhetoric, Blake, and yeah. and Kevin, and it's about messaging as opposed to um, the, the substance and form over substance. And, yeah, I mean, in any piece of legislation, uh, the, you increase the chances of passage by everybody feeling some pain. I mean, this isn't going to be perfect for anybody, and I think there's mm-hmm. enough in there that you can um, – you can get over the Freedom Caucus hurdle. You know, it's interesting, Kevin, because one of the other one of the other pieces of this is is the subsidy, right? One of the things that we we debated uh, for for a long time as the Affordable Care Act was coming, and then its, then its aftermath was the subsidies to yep. to, to to encourage people, especially young people, yep. um, to to buy insurance. And one of the criticisms, of course, has been that. The penalty wasn't large enough to offset the the costs, and and you certainly the, the rationale for for more young people in in the system is presumably the just a lot healthier yep. than older people, and 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 that's a that's a good thing. You need more of them more of them in the system. This changes the subsidies in a way where it's not it's not um, it it will distribute subsidies based on age, not by income. Presumably that. Young people make less money, uh, greater greater need for for a subsidy um, than than if you're older, and and certainly you know making making you know more money. But a person under 30, the subsidy would 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 be two thousand dollars a year. Um, for people over 60, it's four thousand dollars a year, and it ex- but it does expand the type of plans that'll qualify for subsidies. So so in the context of what we're doing to subsidize healthcare. Um, do, do you think that 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 this that's enough? Because that's a big issue for Democrats. Yep. Um, that 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 continuing to talk about subsidies is going to be is going to be something that Democrats are going to have to assent to. That they're going to have to they're going to have to look at this bill and say, yeah, there's there's stuff I, I don't love. But to Howard's point, we're never going to get a perfect bill. Yep. We're still subsidizing health care, which I like. Yep. What are your What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I think. It, like anything else, it's going to be a negotiation, and I think, you know, who knows if that number will go up or down. But I think in the end, um, I think for for especially younger people, I mean, I think the option of having more choices within that type of plan. I think people like options, right? I mean, it was just the way you know, young people think, and I think they'll feel 
feel better about that, then they can make their, their, their decisions based on what's out there for them. So I think, I think the Democrats are going to have to come around to that point. And I think one of the things that we've probably been lost in a lot of the polarization in the country is the fact that, um, you know, you still need to negotiate. You're not going to get everything you want. And that's part of our system, right? I mean, and, and, that, and I think, you know, sometimes it's not, a, and I think both sides for, you know, at least the last 10 or, you know, 10 years or so, maybe even a little bit longer than that, feel like it's a, a winner take all, which I think, which is gridlock. But I think the reality is people are going to get some stuff they want and they're not going to get other stuff they want, but hopefully it could be attractive enough where they can get some, some details. I think people at this point in the country, they just need to see people working together at some point. Listen, if the president could tone down the rhetoric a little bit, if Congress could work together a little bit, like I said before, pick and shovel work, Howard's point, put your head in the sand and start working. I think people will be feeling a lot better about where the country goes, and hopefully that's where everyone can go. But I don't know if we're going to get there. Yeah, Howard, I, I, I mean, it, 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 as, as we dissect this, and I think it's really important, you know, that I, I want to I finish with one kind of smaller point before we get to Medicaid expansion, which is a huge issue for the states and and certainly, uh, you know, our national footprint advocating in, in, in not only in Washington, but, but, in, but in all 50 states um, is going to be an issue that, that state legislatures and governors um, are, are going to have to deal with. But, but one of the things that, that will be interesting is, is you know, as, as the American population ages, uh, which is – and as Americans live longer, which is, of course, a great thing – um, you know, one of the challenges of the Republican bill, and Republicans are often criticized about, uh, you know, about attacking Medicare and Medicaid and, and older Americans really feeling like that, that they're, they're, they're under political siege at times. Um, but an older population was a pro-Trump population. Um, and and this, this plan allows for states to charge the elderly five times as much um, as as younger younger participants, um, which I think is going going to be an issue, especially for people who are now caring for their parents and yeah. beginning to manage their own their their healthcare needs yeah. and, and and trying to forecast what what that's going to be like from a cost perspective. So I sense that that we might we might have a have a different kind of debate on our hands, um, and and that that older older Americans may perk up a little bit. Um, around this bill, but Howard, I want to pivot to Medicaid expansion, which has, which has been a huge issue and a bi bipartisan issue. Uh, Thirty states expanded expanded Medicaid after the passage of the Affordable Care Act. We have seen many Republicans, Republican governors, come out and, and encourage um, not only the House but uh, the administration to leave Medicaid expansion in some form in place. This bill does that; it keeps Medicaid expansion. Um, but if you're if you're looking beyond Washington, Howard, to the states, you know what are what are your thoughts from a Medicaid expansion perspective in terms of how how Democrats and Republicans you know look at this issue because their core issue is represented in this legislation. You know, I think they look at it in terms of uh, sadly, but in terms of who votes for who, and. Um, and that's where a lot of this decision making is, is coming from it and the posturing is coming from. And things like Medicaid expansion obviously impact um certain populations and, and not others. And so in some ways 
there arm wrestling for for um, future votes. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting because if we were to if we were to sort of sort of perhaps un, unfairly sort of capture what the House bill does, it 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 sort of turns certain things upside down in terms of who you think your political allegiances are. This is this would appear to disadvantage the elderly more than poor low-income Americans, which is which is interesting. Um, it it while it while it it obliterates the, the 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 hot charge individual mandate term of art. It creates a different form of entitlement if you consider what what we what we consider entitlements to be, and it imposes it continues to impose a tax, yep. um, which which anyone who's sort of studied this understands. And I think look, you you've got a speaker of the house who is look tax reform, health reform. He he clearly understands these issues. The interplay of these issues, and 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 no one suggests that he's not a not not a very intelligent intelligent guy. Um, but but this is how if you're going to make healthcare reform stand up in in the United States, you've got to these things have to be present. Otherwise, we're we're just back to you know to a system that that wasn't working for anybody, and even Republicans would agree with that, Kevin. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and I think, you know, Blake, you've done a really good job over the last few minutes kind of laying out kind of some of the some of the benefits or, or say some of the some of the stipulations of, of the bill. Um, but think about this. How do you sell this politically? Just, you know, it, it, it's a lot. It's complicated. You know, there's not one system for everyone. There's a lot of different things that will affect different populations at, at a variety of levels. But just from a, a purely political standpoint, I've been trying to get my head around who sells this. Is is the president going to have enough discipline to go out on a, on a barnstorming tour of America and sell this proposal and get into the, get into the weeds? Um, are members of Congress going to go back to their districts because we've seen what's been going on with with members of Congress in the districts? Yeah. How does this and how does this actually, to your point, you know, politically, how does it even how does it play out? And that's the question that I've been struggling with, and I think. Um, as pe- more people see it and they meet, hear about it, it's it's a little bit confusing. Which, granted, it's healthcare is a confusing topic, and I just am very curious about how that the continued rollout is going to be once things really get into a mix. People go back to their districts for the summer. How do you handle that? Because it was pretty contentious in 2009. Well, That's well, let's yeah. Howard, let's let's throw yeah. Kevin's question to you. I mean, as and again, it's early. We're we're just the devil is in the details. They're you know, a, a lot of this is very much about positioning and 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 what you deal with it. But but as you said, and and your insights, you're you know you're on Capitol Hill every day. You're talking to to leadership and staff at the committee level um, constantly. It, 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 to your point, the uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate um, has has begun to telegraph that he is going to call a vote for this, and there's not going to be a lot of a lot of tinkering. Um, what, what do you think the politics of, of this ultimately ultimately are for for Republicans in swing districts and for Democrats in swing districts? I mean, this is a this uh, in the House. This is a negotiation, and um, Trump even said that in his in his tweet this morning. The bill's set up for a negotiation, and I think that. There should be a vigorous negotiation around something that's 20% of the U.S. economy. 
and that's fundamentally what's going to go on here. Yeah, I I I, I tend to think just to just to weigh in, Kevin, to sort of build upon your your question, which I think is the, is the right one, and, and sort of how it'll how how this thing will ultimately play out. I tend to I tend to to certainly agree with Howard's point that they the the rollout was smart, doing this up through the committee system rather than it being than being leadership driven. I think it's also smart politics for Paul Ryan to not necessarily be the face of this yet. Um, he may very well end up being the face of the compromise to to Howard's point, but but being the face of of the bill itself. And and I think smart politics for Trump too to sort of say, look, this is this is the beginning of a negotiation. I think we'd all agree the Republicans know politically they've got to get something done. This, this unlike Trump's budget, it gives you the means to negotiate. Yeah. And I tend to think that, that Democrats look at this, and I, I, you know, I look at this as pragmatically, and I think, all right, I can have a conversation about we're going to get rid of the individual mandate, but we're gonna, we are going to penalize people for not getting health insurance because we know we need them in the system. We're going to have a let's have a discussion about that. We can have that discussion. We're not going to burden small businesses with having to provide people with health insurance because they can't afford it. We're going to we're going to shift this burden to the individual and make the individual deal with it. Let's have a conversation about that. Um, We're going to we're going to deal with subsidies on, you know, in a different form. We're going to keep Medicaid expansion. We may cap the amount of money we can give you, but we're going to keep it. I want to talk to governors about that. Look, there are lots of things to have a conversation about, and and I think as long as the White House doesn't, you know, railroad this in in some negative form, Howard, I, I think we're we my my impression is we're, we are we are at the beginning of a of a very reasonable conversation among decision makers. The the ether, the 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 town halls and the the, the far left and the far right are going to hate this, but they're going to hate anything. Yep. Um, but, so. but, but I mean, look. Sorry, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to I was going to get your reaction to that. It seems like we're yeah. we're we're on a path to that reasonable negotiation. Politics is all about ownership. Who owns a particular issue? Who's accountable to the public? To other uh, people holding public office um, on any given issue, and and that's kind of where where the rubber hits the road in terms of politics. The Republicans are acutely aware of the fact that they own this bill. They're also acutely aware of the fact that for the last eight years, they've been able to shellac the Obama administration for having passed this in the first place, having considered it and passed it, and that it's been a winning political hand for them. And I'll tell you, um, they don't want to be, what I'm hearing is they are acutely aware of not being on the receiving end of that which they've been dishing out for for the past eight years. So I think while this is not going to be a bipartisan bill, I think they're going to be careful to do this in a way that um, they don't set themselves up for eight years of uh, of bashing by um, by by the left. I, I just say I think they're going to I think they're going to be smart about. It. Yeah, this it certainly. I think that this will be interesting, Howard. To your point, and I think you're you're right. And for for you know everyone on the call in the 
in the healthcare space. Obviously, we're we're we're, we're intimately involved, if you can't tell, in in, in the ramifications of this. But um, but at the same time, the House has a pretty comfortable Republican majority. Absent something really tricky from the Freedom Caucus, you 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 can certainly envision the House being able to shepherd uh, some something very close to what we're seeing through. But in the Senate, we you know until the until the rules change or until we see something different, there is that 60 vote threshold, which um, you know is is going to be interesting. And you've got you've got Democrats up next year who you know are going to have to think about what what this means. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by, by this in the same way that I was fascinated with the first time that we yep. dealt with the Affordable Care Act. I think it's, it makes for both really interesting policy and really interesting politics. Um, and, and, and that's always, in our business, that's always fun. Yep. Um, so, look, we have, we, have, we have spent a lot of time on, on one particular issue, but I think it's an enormous issue um, but the, uh, the politics of Washington are, are, as I say, never dull. Um, and we will look forward to not only a continued discussion and analysis of what's going on with the Affordable Care Act, but, but other issues as they evolve. Tax reform certainly uh, appears to be on the horizon. We will be, we will be tracking that closely and, and certainly communicating about that. As always, if you have questions or, or comments or, or or, or anything at all, uh, you can you can email us at presidentialanalysis at at cozen .com. Kevin, it's been great to have you join us today. I think uh, I think you 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 you've certainly um, stepped into Mark's shoes uh, admirably as as his as his feet rest in ski boots on a slope somewhere. Um, and Howard, of, of course, as always, great great to be with you. Um, thanks, guys, and and thanks to everyone thanks, for listening. We look forward thanks, to Kevin. talking to you next week. Thanks Thank a lot. You.